Real people, real stories, and real challenges that break the status quo. I'm your host, Jivila, and welcome to Perception Paradise. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Perception Paradox. Today we're back with a part two of episode with Alex Berger. In the first episode, we covered about Alex's life, unusual childhood, his curiosity and many projects he's been working on while having a proper kind of corporate job. And today we're back with part two, where we're going to dive more into Alex's life philosophy and as well... Uh, his imposter syndrome and his book that he wrote in less than a year and many more things. So get ready, tune in and enjoy. So Alex, you're doing a lot of things and you're mentioning all those small side projects that are not that small actually, they're big entrepreneurial projects and some people have this goal for their whole life to write a book or to launch some startup. My question is very simple. How do you deal with the imposter syndrome? Yeah, imposter syndrome has been a solid challenge over the years. And and now it's 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 gone from like my nemesis to being a little bit more of a of a friend. I think imposter syndrome it took me a long time to accept that one of the things that drives me to be better and to be good is this like nagging, insecure, annoying little parrot on my shoulder that's constantly just kind of like, oh, they're just gonna figure out that you're faking it or that you're not really that skilled at this or that you don't know what you're doing or that you don't know what you're talking about or all those okay. things, right? Like it's, it's that constant thing. So now I, I, I listen to it and I think, okay, like at least that motivates me, right? Like that's the gas in the tank to kind of be be good, be better. And, and I think you look at a lot of people who do do a lot of interesting things. And the one thing that a lot do share is that imposter syndrome, right? Like it's, it's, it's very much there. So for me, what helped was reflecting a lot and catching myself. It's almost like I, I picture myself like a video game character sometimes where like you've got the character in your first person and then you like zoom out and you're looking down in third person and, and, and you're, you know, you're up above and kind of you're watching yourself go through everything and you're like, okay, well, obviously you're like, that doesn't make sense. Uh, when yeah. you put it in that context, right? So a lot of solo travel helped a lot with kind of moving through the imposter syndrome side of it, just because I, I really had to believe in myself and internalize a lot of self-confidence. And then doing dance for so many years, because each dance is a micro performance, mm -hmm. micro, you know, conversation, all these elements, right? You go, you approach the other person, you have the conversation in the form of the dance and kind of you're doing that in a very social, what feels like a very social context. So all of those were, were small things that kind of built my confidence, I guess. And then just helping me learn to kind of index more and more experiences that I could then reflect on and be like, okay, well, you felt like an imposter there and you weren't, you felt like an imposter there and you weren't felt like an imposter there and probably were, you know, <laughs> like, 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 you know, making sense. So like getting older, just helps right. In the grand oh, scheme yeah. of things, I think that that's probably what ultimately has, has played the biggest role in, in kind of helping me embrace my imposter syndrome uh, versus really having it play really heavily on me. I mean, one of the reasons actually that I probably wrote Practical Curiosity was an ode to imposter syndrome, right? Yeah, that's um, interesting. To prove to myself that I could write a book 
to show myself that I could kind of undertake this project and do it. And then I really had to fight imposter syndrome at the very end because I'd written the book, the book was ready to publish, I'm sitting there, and then this mental voice kind of like kicked in and it was like, well, you've written the book, you've shown, you've shown to yourself that you can write a book and you can write it in six to eight months. So that's good, you don't need to actually click publish and just put it out there. <laughs> Nobody's gonna read it anyway, right? Only five people are gonna pick it up. It'll be mom and dad and my brother you know, somebody else, you know, like whatever it is. Right. And then it was like, no, 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 we got to publish this. We've got to put it out there. I'm sure there's a typo in it. There's probably a typo in a really annoying location and it's something that I disagree with, I'm sure. But all of that was kind of an extension fueled by the imposter syndrome and the need to kind of overcome it. And I, it, it also fueled my desire to publish the book when I published it, because with that type of like, what does, what did I know at 35 or whatever I was when I, mm -hmm. when I was writing at 34, 35 about life. Who am I to sit down and write a book about, you know, practical curiosity, the guide to life, love and travel, right? Like, do I know love? Do I know travel? Do I know life? Like, like, well, like what is it? And there my posture syndrome was just blaring away again. Right. But I reflected on it and I thought, I don't want this story to change as my internal narrative changes over time. Like right now I'm writing this for my 22, 25, 28, 30, 35 year old self and mm -hmm. friends and everybody else. So now is the point where it's going to be the most authentic version of what I'm working on and what I'm writing. 10 years from now, I'm not going to remember a lot of the challenges or the reflections, and I'll rewrite that subconsciously into my own, whatever you want to call it, my own journey, my own narrative. And so it was that exercise of sometimes it's more authentic, more effective, yeah, impactful and meaningful actually to do something in the moment versus delaying it or polishing it or figuring out the next iteration, which was a direct contrast because the imposter syndrome had so much vulnerability attached to it. At the same time, like it could have been devastating. Publish it, and everybody says, "Oh, what, what an idiot!" What have you done? What's an idiot? <laughs> right, like, like. Well, well. I'm glad it was okay, but um, it still seems like quite a challenging process. And how do you handle the moments of doubt, especially in the world that sometimes we value death over breath? And how do you deal with it? It's so hard, right? Sometimes it's just kind of putting it to bed and letting it sit for. A couple of weeks, you know, and, and then my mind will process it and I'll kind of work on doing a little bit more research or revisiting it over and over and over and over. And if it kind of has a stickiness, I'll talk to family, I'll talk to friends and I'll talk it through and kind of mm. soft pitch it a little bit. One of the exercises in that annual birthday post or writing it up to friends, it's an extension of that old. And if you really want to make sure you understand something, teach it or explain it to somebody. And that exercise of putting it down into words or writing it down or shaping it makes me think through and fill in all these gaps that I was kind of sliding over in my mental approach to it. And also, you know, getting challenged when someone's like, oh, that doesn't make sense to me or it doesn't match with how they think or whatever it is. And that can be incredibly daunting, especially because then I'm sitting and I'm trying to figure out, is this critique, is this objection, is this headwind that I've run into valid? Is it something that like is valid, but I just haven't communicated myself effectively enough yet? Is it something that actually they just aren't the right audience, right? Like I'm not going to sell a, travel stories to somebody that maybe hates travel or, you know, vice versa. Right. So it really is just kind of coming at it a lot of different ways. And it's also where that generalistic side of it is actually quite useful. So with mm -hmm. the, the other project with Miss Defender, I spent a number of years sitting 
and wanting to do something entrepreneurial after the book, mm-hmm. but also wanting, again, to figure out how to do that like six to eight months, but for a project and, and, the, and the maintenance side of it. So how do I build a project or a product? Uh, what does that product look like? How do I go through the design and structuring process of it? How do I make it? How do I uh, get it ordered and do all these different things without having a huge financial outlay, without having uh, to totally reinvent the wheel and have a huge manufacturing process? How do I do all these different things? And so I kind of had that formula, I guess, or that thought exercise, thought umbrella, if you will. And then I would kind of run different ideas through it. And there were a lot of different ideas at different points on, oh no, this one's too expensive to start up or this one I can't do side by side with my current job, or this one would take too much work to ship 500, whatever it would be, right? Like little bottle caps uh, every week. Do I want to be going down to the post office and carry all this stuff down? Like, am I at that point? Is it worth the money? Is it worth the effort? And so having that type of kind of filtering process also helps me kind of temper the excitement and then I can convince myself and talk myself into it where, no, you've been pretty critical, right? Like you, 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 you've kind of blocked this. You've, you've, you've run it through with people that you respect and people that are, that are happy to challenge you versus just saying, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. You should go do it. Right. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's the process. What is your relationship with the failure? I'm really bad at it. <laughs> right. Like it's the, the, the biggest thing that I, or one of the biggest things that I'm, I'm kind of continually working on is one to focus on really wanting to be accurate not right right and then two to really be focusing on what i can learn from it and either learn from it post failure or understand as possible opportunities for it to be a partial win right so the product uh, after practical curiosity missed defender I had, you know, these big dreams. I, 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 I did an initial run of 2000 of them. And I think I probably sold, you know, uh, whatever it is, a thousand. Um, Explain for the audience what this Miss Defender. I think I know, but like not everybody might be aware of it. Yeah. It, it, it came out of my, my passion for photography. Uh, and I was photographing, uh, waterfalls and, and these different things in relatively cold climates. And as a landscape photographer, I had my tripod, I had lens cloths, all these different lens cloths. Right. And then I'd have them stashed in all my different pockets. And then picture that, um, so the idea came about when I was in Iceland and I was deep in this crevasse cave space, water kind of pouring down a little bit to the side, mist flowing all over everything, getting me quite damp. It's super cold. It's kind of snowy-ish outside. And I need to keep wiping the, the, the lens between every photo because I'm taking these long exposure photos. And so, and I'm reaching in my pocket and I pull it out and my lens cloth is covered in pocket lint from you know, the, or paper towel, or I'm dropping it on the gravel and then I can't use it anymore and all these things. And I thought there has to be a better way to do a lens cloth for somebody who's, who's doing this. And so then I'm at the Mist Defender, which is basically a retractable key badge, if you will, with a, a, a special two-piece uh, lens cloth uh, on a hundred millimeter um, retractable uh, badge uh, that I can just attach to the side. So I could reach in front of my tripod, I can wipe it and I can let it go. And that way I'm not dropping the camera or falling off the rocks or things like that. And that met a lot of my criteria for something that was relatively cheap to manufacture, that was portable, that still had like a a sellable audience, all these different elements. I ran into problems kind of with the go-to-market and and, and that side of it. But from the outset with with going through the process on that one, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a financial success 
or financial failure, mm -hmm. but I was sure that I would learn from the process. And that's kind of an illustration of, of, of one of those failures, right? And it wasn't a failure of the product itself, right? The product is good. Interest is good when people get it. It's, uh, it, it was more a storytelling challenge, but it didn't make, it didn't make money, but I did learn from it. And so I also thought at the, at the get go, okay, this is going to cost me about as much as a, a semester of university. Am I going to learn at least that much from the process, either the success, the failure, the, the, the scoping, all that side of it. And I did get all of that out of it. So then it was just that all this other stuff that could have been a failure if I just purely dwelled on that, like, okay, I didn't hit my sales goals within the first year. I didn't hit sales goals within the first two years. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, people must not like it. It's a failure, you know, like that, that type of challenge. And I could have spiraled on that, but instead it was, look, here's, I've learned a lot from this process. It moved me forward and I can use that on the next one. I can, I can roll that forward. I learned a lot and I did a bunch of stuff that I'm super proud of. I filed for my own trademark and learned how to do that and was successful in that. So even all these little skills that I honed while I was doing it were, were things that totally helped me combat my imposter syndrome and, um, weren't failures, even though the wider project okay. arguably was a failure. Yeah. Well, pretty impressive. But going back to your maybe life management would be a better expression. You have quite a bunch of hobbies, right? Photography, kind of almost, I would say, professional dancing, traveling, entrepreneurship, full-time job. How do you do that? How? Yeah, so I think it's about pursuing a balance between what I have to do and what gives me the most energy in the moment. So that's where, again, like that generalistic tendency of having a lot of different kind of irons in the fire. It's not a question of like, oh, I have to do this today most of the time. It's which one of these irons do I want to pick up and do I want to hammer on a little bit and turn into something, right? It's that blacksmithing opportunity mm -hmm. and all this stuff it's just cooking away in the fire right so if today i come home and work was incredibly difficult and i did a ton of like really detailed writing and was in excel spreadsheets or whatever it was maybe it's time to come home and meditate and just edit photos and just get lost in that moment right and and that just completely does it or maybe i really need to move and then it's time to go dance and just like let the body move and let me like listen to the music and just kind of immerse myself in it and so it's being very fluid in which project I'm, I'm working on. And, and it's similar to how I approach the book from having the different chapters and sitting down and which chapter do I want to write tonight versus I really have to plow through all of these different things. And this is what I'm going to do today. Yeah. And I think that this is what I'm going to do today works for a lot of people that like that incremental side of it. But for me, I need to be engaged. It's that little kid from first grade, right? With you know, getting that like, all right, what interests Alex today? And of course, that means I also have to set aside time to do the logistics, right? Like, okay, get the taxes done, file the paperwork, yeah. do the hard work. But yeah, like that, it's, it's, it's that ability to switch back and forth, I think, that gives me more mileage out of my energy and, and more out of my, my days than any other approach. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you still think that luck is bullshit? That's what you mentioned in your book in one of the chapters. Or like I mean, that exists. I mean, like, all right, like uh, a white guy from a head, like a highly educated middle-class family born into the American Southwest, 
that's pure luck, right? I mean, like that, in, in that way, like that, it gives me an enormous number of advantages. It gives me enormous number of open, extra open doors and it eliminates a lot of barriers. So I would say in that, in that way, uh, luck isn't bullshit, right? But in the grander or not grander scheme, but, uh, parallel to that, I think a lot of what we misdiagnose as luck is very much just the a series of outcomes based on what we've been open to, what we've done previously, how we're engaging with people, how we're kind of putting ourselves out there, the energy we're putting out there, how everything that we've done to set it up, right? So, you know, it's, it's the classic example of skill looks like it's easy, but it's really just the result of a whole lot of hard work for a lot of, in a lot of situations, right? I was very poorly phrased, but I think in, in that way, what, what is luck? Well, we can definitely, we can rig our luck and people that are overly negative or overly dwelling in creating barriers for themselves or closing doors out of fear or, uh, out of posture syndrome or out of lack of curiosity or social awareness or all these other ways that you open the door and that you kind of, um, make it easier to move through the world. You know, they have quote unquote bad luck, right? And their luck is bullshit. That has nothing to do with luck. So yeah. it's not all luck, but uh, but a lot of what we misconstrue as luck uh, is, is definitely not. Fair enough. I agree that uh, a lot of hard work is behind that as well. And luck is a small part in what we do and can that drive us in some ways, but it's not the main ingredient in success, I would say. Very much. Uh, but you mentioned a, a bit, uh, you touch base a bit on the energy, right? And you talk a lot in your book about kind of three parts, which is creative, creative life and world, your work and your love for relationships. How do you actually um, allocate now, while being so occupied with activities, your energy across these fields? And do you have time and do you have enough time for all those areas? Uh, I'm always neglecting some of them. I very much think about it as if I have a finite amount of energy, a finite amount of time and really over as I get older, but, uh, as I get a little bit older, I have a little bit less energy, um, right. Like versus when I was 22 or 23. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so it changes a little bit. Right. But at any point in time, what I try and do is I try and think about, okay, what to me is the most fulfilling aspect of things right now, because I can't go out and do hundred percent creative, a hundred percent work and a hundred percent relationships or love. Right. Um, and so depending on where I'm at in my life and what I want and, and you know, what we're doing and where we are, there's certain things that we're going to prioritize differently at those different points and being able to scope that and reflect on it on like, is this going to be a year or a period where I'm really comfortable focusing on my creative, maybe 60%, my work 40% and my romantic love life, 10%, right? And if, if that's a year on, I'm, I'm totally okay doing that, then yeah, my dating is going to suffer. I'm not creating space and time for romantic partners or, you know, that type of relationships. I'm good at my work, but maybe I'm not fully really pushing my way up the ladder. Maybe I'm just happy where I'm at on that ladder. And then the creative is the fulfillment, or maybe I decide, you know what, I really want a family next year. I want mm -hmm. to prioritize my relationships. And, and I think a lot of new parents, you see that, right? Like they have a kid and they're like, look, I don't have time for the creative. All I can do right now is survive. 
doing my work uh, and looking after my relationship. Oh, yeah. Right. And so like at any point in time, it's always changing. And I find it really useful to kind of just think like, okay, look, like I could only do so much. I could only have so many of those irons in the fire. Right. And so which ones am I going to choose to put a, you know, have, have active at any point in time and then not to be hard on myself if I'm actually only dedicating 10% on one side and to also be honest about that with people, right? Like this isn't the main focus right now. It's a focus. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to try and be excellent and present and attentive to all that I'm doing there. But yeah, maybe this is the book here, right? Or maybe this is the work here or period. Basically choosing your wave to write and the period of time. Yeah, very much so. Pretty cool. Given your actually diverse experience, I have one more question that just popped into my mind. What's your take on destiny versus free will? How much do you believe in destiny? So th this one is, is, is such a tricky one uh -huh. because I think about it a lot, but I think about it from, from the standpoint of that there is functionally probably no free will. Mm-hmm if time started at one set point in time. So if time started at one set point in time, probably not Big Bang, but whatever it is, there was one state and that suddenly split into two and it was a yes or a no. And every action from that point in time is a series of yes and no's. So it's basically just a series of this happened or this happened, right? And so in that way, free will is not really free will because it's shaped directly down to this moment of yes or no, or maybe that is free will, that yes or no, but you don't know which, which side of that you're on, right? So you could basically mm -hmm. predict someone's behavior if you had omnipotent, perfect knowledge and what their behavior would be at any given moment. We don't have that data. That data is utterly impossible and it would still be a yes, no decision. So in that way, it would still feel and look like free will by every possible measure. And so I'm stuck in between. I don't actually know kind of where I fall on it because it depends on the day, right? Because yeah. it's like, on the one hand, then no, if you had the perfect information, free will is is just <laughs> the natural outcome of everything that came before, right? Like it's just predictive. Uh, and and maybe, maybe, maybe time is a loop and it bounces and mm. there is no beginning, in which case then, then it's totally different. So uh, yeah, I've totally overthought that one versus having a good clean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Wait, wait, wait. But so then how much of your own path would uh, you attribute to conscious choices versus, let's say, the serendipity of life? I'd say the vast majority is serendipity. Mm -hmm. So if I wasn't exposed to different cultures early on, if I didn't have kind of all of these kind of doors opened along the way that nudged me that way, if I didn't have those certain challenges along the way, then what feels like just natural intentional decisions like, well, I'm going to go travel and live in Europe or oh, I'm going to study communication. Right. Mm -hmm. But all of that, like underlying, un underlying hardware and experiences and everything else that shaped me quite heavily. Right. So maybe that uh, negates my previous statement about luck is, is bullshit, but it's definitely fun to think of. And, and also to look back and, and, and when you have an epiphany about like, ah, it's been 25 years, but that's where that behavior or curiosity or passion came from, right? Like, uh, that's where they put a camera in my hands and I was a little kid and I thought, oh, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to go and do more with this, right? And uh, 
yeah, those are the puzzles that I think we, we continue to explore and try and figure out. Yeah, and they're always very tricky and interesting. <laughs> so interesting. Very much. Before we close, Alex, so if there was one core message or philosophy that you would like to share with the listeners of this episode of the podcast and something that has been the backbone of your journey, what would that be? Maybe some kind of life philosophy or some kind of experiences or mindset approach. Yeah, I think that's very much that be, being curious, right? Yeah. Um, like to embrace and, and, and feed your, your curiosity, but with criticality, right? I think it's super important to be curious, but not to use curiosity as a way of avoiding actually being curious. Like curiosity is being wrong. Curiosity is being right. Curiosity is having that curiosity take you in directions that you weren't planning for or that are outside your comfort zone or maybe you're not ready for. And so I think that, yeah, embracing that curiosity, but with, with a twist of criticality is a huge one. And then of course, to be an unapologetic generalist, if that speaks to you and fits your uh, way of interacting with the world. Mm, oh, that's really, really great advice and kind of philosophy, but I would like to follow up actually because it just ring the bell for me. So recently I've been talking to many people who are struggling with their life decisions. They're kind of stuck in between and they would like to launch some business or some ideas, but they kind of are still employed and not making that first step while working kind of in a normal full-time job. What would be your um, advice, maybe suggestion? How can people start? Yeah, I think it's what your risk profile is. It's also how can you how can you set yourself up to take the jump and to dive into it without doing critical damage to yourself so can you recover from whatever it is that you're going to do and then as long as you have that decent foundation right like are you going to end up out on the street which i guess is always is always a possibility right like that whole like oh i'm just going to take on a hundred thousand dollars in in debt mortgage the car sell everything like I'm, I'm all in it, it works for for some people but i think for the for the average person it's really important to figure out what is your safety net and what is your comfort level relative to that safety net and how can you take what feel or look like big risks that actually challenge you but don't really 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 jeopardize your your long-term ability to recover and i think one of the things with Denmark that's really nice is there's this extra safety net versus the U.S. Or, or some other places where, you know, you could be under a huge amount of debt and not have health care and not have a place to live and be on a street and, and really set yourself back really far if you miscalculated on that quite quickly uh, in the U.S. Parts of Europe, you have a little bit more kind of safety. So I think that's one part of it. The other part is kind of what is your risk profile and how much are you willing to dedicate to that creative bubble versus the work bubble versus the relationship bubble? And do you have enough bandwidth left with that day job to do a really good job there and then to go home and work that second shift? And are you getting enough energy out of it to really run with that and to, to have that be something? And are you the type of person that can do that, can stick with it and can carry it through without burning the bridges behind you. Because some people do need to burn the bridges behind themselves, right? Like that that's the only way forward, right? Like quit the job, go out there and do it. 
And that does work for some people. I think for me, I want to move forward and the entrepreneurship is an intellectual exercise. It's an opportunity to build and to play. And it's also an opportunity to really create something. And if that takes off and it really picks up momentum, I'm going to do everything within my power to kind of nurture that and make sure that it's going to grow. But I'm not going to kind of burn everything else down, rip everything else out for the sake of going all in on that. And that also gives me the opportunity to play and work with more opportunities. So I have more opportunities for success along the way, which kind of, I would say, dilutes some of the failures. I think the other thing over the years that I've kind of picked up on, and it's not always true, but the narrative that gets told about the people that burn the bridges behind themselves and then went forward is usually not true. That they probably had a good safety net of some sort there. And there's definitely cases of people that have, have done that, but the big difference between Bill Gates starting out in a garage versus the reality of the story for Bill Gates that we've heard over the years, right? On kind of family connections, picking up the phone, opportunities, having a garage, all these different elements. And I don't think that in any way undermines the success of the entrepreneurial venture or the ability to execute impact. It's just very much about like, okay, how can I be strategic, be smart about this and not getting caught up in the story of kind of the heroes all in. Like if I don't go all in, then I'm, I'm then, you know, like uh, I don't have any, then that's the only any, way. Any, any chance of success. Yeah. yeah. Because otherwise there's, there's a survivor bias as well. Right. So you hear these great stories and then how many people have ended up homeless on the street, uh, or yeah. rebuilding or crashing on friends' sofas until they can do it again. And sometimes yeah. that works for people. I right. think also that's an external pressure, right? Right now, everyone is trying to build a unicorn because it yeah. just became a hype. But we don't have to build unicorns. What about sustainable businesses, sustainable kind of ways to solve the problems? But uh, really great insights, Alex. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it will bring some food for thought. And we are getting to this kind of final part of this podcast, which is a ritual where I always ask the guests for this final question that would set for us the rest of the day that we could reflect and think about the perceptions and self-discovery. So what question would you like to share with our audience to dive in today as they continue their journey? I would say reflect on what your bow wave is and a bow wave, think of yourself as a boat. And there's a lot of different types of boats. Uh, there's speed boats, sailboats, barges, big tankers, all of those are pushing a lot of water. They're displacing a lot of water ahead of them. A barge pushes a whole lot of water ahead. A speedboat is racing across the top. Reflect on where in your life you're a speedboat, where in life you're a barge, and how that's creating resistance at work or, or in your friendships, in your relationships, in your projects. And maybe you think you're a speedboat, but you're actually in barge mode. And I think we can all look at our kind of lives, our work culture, our work experience, and reflect on on which one of those we are, which state we're in. And that helps prevent us from getting blindsided or surprised by, by negative outcomes. And uh, it really opens the possibility of moving through life in a, a, smoother, uh, a smoother way. Amazing. Thank you, Alex. It's been so great to have you here on this journey. And thank you for being with us today. Final question. Where can people follow your journey? Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you. Um, the best place is on virtualwayfarer.com, where I do the blogging and that side of it, uh, or alexberger.net, which has links to 
the plethora of social websites and projects and photography and, and whatever future random rabbit holes I decide to wander down. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Perception Paradox. I value your thoughts and want to hear from you. After listening, share your feedback. Also answer the question of Alex in the Spotify comment section. And looking forward to see you in the future episodes. And that was it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. It was part two with Alex Berger when we dived in into his imposter syndrome live book. And in case you missed part one, you can find it on your favorite podcast channel. And right now, see you in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you.